Welcome to Classic Comics, everyone. Episode 39 today. And today is going to be a different episode. I know I seem to be going to more different episodes as opposed to some of the traditional style episodes I've been uh, I've been mostly doing. But that's just how it is. And today we are going to do something that is topical uh, in in comics in today's comics, as well as uh, you know related directly to to golden age stuff. Um, as you probably saw if you looked at the title, it's uh, this episode's going to be about the current Alan Scott, the Green Lantern miniseries. Now there are lots of different uh, opinions about this series out there on the internet already and I'm not trying to pile on to either side uh, I consider myself to be fairly balanced and uh, have a particular uh, perspective I don't think I fall into either camp on the extreme I think I'm somewhere in the middle but one thing I do know I can say is I'm on the side of comics. I'm on the side of the history of comics. I'm on the side of uh, respecting stories. I'm on the side of storytelling that, that develops characters over the years with a through line. Uh, and I, I like those stories that that when they do try to retcon something, they they find a way to work in as much of what's come before uh, as part of the story to make to make sense of it, to make uh, to make it fit, to seem like there is a unifying whole going on, uh, a whole as W H O L E, a whole thing as opposed to a hole, a gap. Um. We'll, we'll venture over into the Jay Garrick and Sandman miniseries that are running concurrently as well as a bit of a comparison with, uh, with some of the stuff. So uh, I'm doing this episode with the intent not to lose friends or acquaintances. Uh, I, I also want to try to be fair and, uh, and, and real, reasonable. I have not been reviewing this comic for DC Comics News. I have been reviewing the Wesley Dodd Sandman series. Uh, I, I have not been buying this series. I do have access to it because of the the, DC, the, the reviews that, that I do do uh, over there, but this is not one of the books I, I, I'm doing. I chose not to do it. I could have said I'll do that, but I chose not to do it on purpose because I didn't, uh, you know... We'll get into it. I guess that's where we should start is the uh, the whole idea of retconning uh, Alan Scott's sexuality. I'm I'm not I'm not a fan of it. I'll start with that. Uh, I think there's too much in Alan Scott's the first eighty years of his history to uh, to say that if you retcon his sexuality, then you're gonna end up having too many other things to explain 
recontextualized as the series was solicited as a recontextualization of his history. But I think there's too much to, to do with that. I think uh, once he uh, was introduced and in, reintroduced uh, in the uh, in the 60s, you know, there wasn't anything really done deeper with the character until until the, the 70s in All-Star Comics, which we have been covering on the Earth 2 and the Bronze Age show. And, and, and one of the things they do try to do with Alan Scott's character is develop uh, the idea that he's been so focused on being Green Lantern that he's left all other aspects of his life fall by the wayside. He, uh, he ends up losing uh, Gotham Broadcasting Company in the first couple, uh, not the first couple, that's not accurate. It's uh, issue like 65, 64, 65, somewhere in there. Um, it relaunched in 50, issue 58. So issue 64, 65, somewhere in there. He He's losing um, Gotham Broadcasting and he ends up taking a job with uh, Jay Garrick at his uh, as research lab, but one of the things that is is shown is that he's he's ignored his 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 life outside of being Green Lantern, uh, and that includes personal relationships. There's uh, his secretary, I guess it is, is you know trying to get him to uh, you know open up and talk about things, and she's trying to be there for him, and you can tell it's implied she's she's interested in in Alan. Uh, but he's he's got so much on his plate he doesn't have he doesn't have time for that. And to be fair, as a modern reader, um, you could look at that and say that was uh, something you could point to that oh he was really gay and just wasn't interested. And uh, I think that's just not what's intended there. Uh, obviously not intended. Is something you could you could play with uh, in a retcon, sure. Uh, you could point to it, but but it's not trying to be anything other than the fact to show that he's he's got a problem being Green Lantern too much, and he can't uh, he can't uh, attend to anything in his personal life, not his business, not uh, relationships outside being Green Lantern. So when you go into the 80s, uh, even more is done with his character. We have the introduction of his children, Jade and Obsidian. We learn that he was married uh, very, albeit briefly, in the 50s to uh, the Golden Age uh, uh, Rose, uh, a th Thorn character, uh, Rose Canton. Uh, and that ends uh, terribly obviously as, as he never knew he had children and she ran off and disappeared uh, and then the first years of uh, Infinity Incorporated where that story is told uh, Infinity Incorporated annual number one we also learn that uh, the Golden Age Harlequin Molly Maine has been uh, is come back to try to make contact now now it's a real shame that we don't have an omnibus of Golden Age stories with the Golden Age Green Lantern and Harlequin. That would be an ideal uh, book to have to reference for an episode like this. Or even if you're interested in Alan Scott uh, as a uh, 
as a character. The there's a number of Golden Age stories with the two of them, and they certainly do play the uh, the romance angle up. She's all for uh, uh, you know getting together with Alan Scott, and because she's a villain, he can't, and those kind of things. But there's a there's a playful attraction there that they uh, they I can't say they really develop greatly in the Golden Age, but they develop you know as much as you could something like that it's more than just suggested but in the 80s you know she comes back they're older they have this facade among them uh between themselves of being young alan's using his ring to look younger uh uh molly main is using her 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 harlequin uh gadgets to make her appear younger and it all ends up with them coming to terms with the reality of their age and the reality of the feelings they've had for each other over the years uh, and you can then kind of dovetail that into what was going on in the 70s uh, he was too busy being Green Lantern to think about anything else but even if somebody else was uh, you know coming on to him as Alan Scott in the back of his mind there's this uh, this notion of Molly Maine, the, Har the the Golden Age Harlequin there, and so as a couple of, uh, gosh, I guess these they should be in their sixties by then. You know, uh, an older romance that ends up in marriage, and they're married from that moment uh, when they get married all the way th up till the relaunch of the New Fifty Two in two thousand eleven. So nearly a 30-year marriage in the comics, and as the Golden Age characters are supposed to be aging uh, in a sense of real time, they are really that old, <laughs> as old as they would be in 2011, so in their 90s at that point. Uh, suspension of disbelief that the, that the Power Ring and Starheart and all that can keep Alan uh, and Molly young. Uh, Molly uh, ends up at one point being uh, kidnapped to hell, uh, by Neron and Alan Riss's life to save her. So I don't think there's any doubt that uh, in those comics there's a the intention there is a genuine a genuine love uh, for one another. And if you're a reader like me who was reading those stories all along the way, almost all the way back to her uh, his first reappearance in the in the seventies. So I think it's. Uh, it's something you have to take into into account when you you retcon something is significant in a character's life, like their sexuality. It's not something you can easily easily change if they've got a a uh, a story. If they've got stories, if they've got history, if they have character interactions, if they have a life. Alan Scott is a man that was married twice, had two kids. Are there some gay men that come out of the closet with that lifestyle after that sort of lifestyle? Sure, I, I don't deny that, but I think the issue becomes for for co for the comic itself is that it doesn't. It's not something we've ever been privy to, you know. In your own head, if you are that man, you've had these thoughts, and there's a lot of other thoughts and feelings going on besides just what the outside world sees. So we don't see any of that for Alan. And I think one of the hardest things to do is um, 
when it comes to suspension of disbelief, despite these being comics, is that the story that has, uh, the issue that has Alan come out to Jade and Obsidian, I think it's in Infinite Frontier number one, and he, uh, he's a man that at this point is over 100 years old. And I think it's very difficult to have a suspension of disbelief that a man at over 100 years old finally comes to terms with his sexuality and, and tells his children. You would think that when he first discovered that his son, Todd Rice, uh, superhero name Obsidian, was, was gay, that would have, at the very least, brought things to a head and, and created that, if Alan were really supposed to be uh, a homosexual character. But that leads to the other aspect that I think that uh, is deserving of attention is what we lose uh, in making uh, Alan Scott gay when it comes to Obsidian and those stories. One of the interesting things about Alan's development in the 80s in Infinity Inc. with Obsidian and Jade is that he immediately... Uh, hits it off with Jade, they bond almost immediately, and it's not hard to imagine it's because they share the same type of uh, green energy power. It's internalized in Jade, and eventually that'll happen with Alan in, in the 90s, but, uh, you know, at first, it's, it's, a, it, it's a thing they are able to bond over and hit it off, hit it off things with. Uh, of course, you know, they... Todd Rice and Jenny Lynn Hayden, Obsidian and Jade, respectively, had had to do some searching and uh, try to figure out who their father was. They didn't know who it was, and the whole similarity and power set for Jade made them think maybe it was it was uh, Green Lantern. Uh, so once they they do that and meet, uh, as I said, Jade and uh, uh, Alan Scott hit it off, but. Uh, Obsidian is, is a different kind of character. He's a troubled character. He's written uh, from the very beginning as a uh, his his step fan his uh, ab adoptive family was uh, not the best. Uh, some abuse, I think, alcoholism for the dad. Uh, it wasn't the best life. Whereas Jenny Lynn had a great life. So they had different opposites. They had opposite sides uh, of the of the uh, growing up experience. So. You've got that in there, and and it creates a difficulty. Those those couple aspects create a difficulty in the relationship between Todd and Alan Scott. Now this is going to be well before uh, Todd is is revealed to be is to be gay. That doesn't happen until the two thousands. I think it's two thousand and five in an issue of Manhunter, maybe issue nineteen. We'll get to that in a little bit though. Uh, that that he and Alan are having trouble relating and it's hard to tell always it's never nailed down as one thing it's never resolved it's always a lingering aspect so what you've got is a pretty nuanced take on on parenting and how parents and kids react differently to one another even in the same family so you've got a uh, a set of twins that uh, fraternal twins that one is is perfectly in sync with the father, and the other one struggles mightily to uh, to relate. And I think you know, as a teenager, it's easy to see that relationship uh, as a, 
broadly for any teen that's having trouble relating to parents. Um, and as an adult, when you read it, it's easy to see how, as a parent, how, how hard it can be sometimes to relate to one child, uh, uh, even if your relationship with your other child is much more, uh, is much easier and natural because people are different. It just takes things. So I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going there that, that contributes to Alan Scott's character. And it's, and it's reliant on his, uh, his being a father, his being a father to uh, two different children that are, that are different uh, from each other, and thus the relationships are different. It's one of those, uh, you know, parts of comics growing up and being more, uh, more directed to adult, adult themes, not adult themes in, uh, in the sense of uh, uh, things of a sexual nature or uh, that, but just a little kids not really care much about that. But once you're an older teen, it's, gets, it's going to start to resonate, the relationship between parents and teenagers, and especially when it's done in a, in, in a subtle, and, uh, subtle way at times, uh, as it's part of the overall story where you can still enjoy the superhero aspects of the tales. Um, so, if you take Alan Scott's uh, sexuality and you change it, and he's supposed to have been gay the whole, whole time, uh, from you know his his uh, his life in the '40s. We we know from this current miniseries that he's not uh, someone who just realized and he when he hit a hundred, maybe I'm gay. He knew he was gay all along. Now, what will happen in the last two issues of that series? You know, we can't say as of yet, but. I would find it difficult to think that there would be some sort of turn where he would use the ring to make himself not think he was gay and then it wears off later. I've thought about that. Maybe that's what they're going to do. Uh, and I bring that up because, uh, you know, we're talking about the importance of, of Todd Rice to the, the Green Lantern and the JSA Earth 2 uh, mythos and the... Uh, the in, in, the inclusion of him as a gay character, uh, also, besides just his existence in the in the as a character in both Manhunter when he is first uh, outed, uh, and his subsequent development in the uh, JSA titles that were running at the time, uh, it's 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 quite important for a couple reasons. Number one, it continues to build on that that theme of the difficult child. The difficult relationship Alan Scott had with Todd, and it finally puts a uh, not saying that uh, it's why they had a troubles, but it's why he was troubled. So you realize that the difficulty in dating girls early on in Infinity Inc., uh, some of the comments he would make later about other characters, they you know they they Mark and Draco who 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 wrote those Manhunter issues, you know was able to bring those uh, ideas together quite. Uh, uh, quite insightfully, uh, seeing things that that would work for, uh, you know, maybe a gay character, and uh, and he gives uh, Todd a relationship with uh, Damon Matthews. Uh, I think he's a DA, uh, if I remember correctly, or assistant DA working for Kate Spencer, having trouble 
haven't read that stuff in a while, but just uh, that the, the, all the details are not necessary, but I can't help but mention them sometimes. But what's important is that uh, they have a relationship, and it's a relationship that goes on because it's referenced in the JSA books at the time, and it it actually provides uh, the the storyline that Alan and Todd actually work things out. And it's not all about him being gay, but it's about their relationship and the fact that Todd was troubled and trying to build that relationship between father and son. And I think that's important because the way Alan is portrayed is there. He's never portrayed as uh, a bigot or a homophobe, but how what he is portrayed as, he's portrayed as a man in his, I guess that would be in his 80s then, uh, from the 40s who would not be comfortable talking about that and that's some of the uh, the verbiage that's used. He's, he's from that era. He's not comfortable talking about that kind of thing. You know a lot of people of that era aren't comfortable talking about sex in any respect, homosexual or uh, heterosexual relationships. It's just not something that was done especially uh, in detail and uh, and with anyone probably other than your spouse and Quite honestly, from my own experience, I, I wonder how much even some spouses uh, spoke uh, about that to one another because of the era it was in. It's just not something you talked about. So the fact that Alan and Todd are able to come to grips with their relationship and forge forward into a better relationship is, is evidence in the fact that there are even some... Uh, instances where it's 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 treated as a joking manner there's one where something happens to Todd and he he's saved and he's like yeah I'm all right Dad. And, and I'm not gay anymore and there's a shocked look on Alan's face and then Todd laughs and says just kidding I'm still gay ha 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 everybody laughs um, and it's poking a little fun at Alan for despite having you know come to grips with his uh his son and them coming together as a as father and son and having finally having a real bond uh, it's still something because of who he is who he where he's the era he's from it's still not something he's 100% comfortable with and I think that's something that could have really springboarded uh, into the next step of of their relationship and their uh and the inclusion of LGBT themes in JSA comics with characters from the Golden Age. And I specifically bring that up because what we're dealing here with retconning Alan Scott's sexuality really is a, a desire to uh, infuse an important Golden Age character uh, in, the, in the JSA with, uh, that's, that's, LGBTQ that's gay they, they there is the notion that it's important to have uh, that representation in a golden age character I don't know how important that is I'll, I'll be honest uh, I don't know that it fits the themes of uh, or it fits the the feelings of the golden age uh, characters 
as we see in the miniseries, it's an exploration of what it was like at that time and potentially pushes it to a topic with even lesser appeal to a modern reader. We know with the attitudes and opinions of the air, we're not going to get an Alan Scott by the end of this series that is accepted by his friends and colleagues because it wouldn't fit the era in which the story is taking place. In order to really make an impact with inclusion, you have to be able to tell a story that has a broader a, a broader approach than simply a historical and exploration of attitudes of a particular era. You've got to be able to tell a story that can change minds and hearts in a believable way. But if you're going to do that, I think there are better, uh, better characters to, to do that with. I've said elsewhere that I think Dr. Midnight would have been an ideal character. He was developed uh, with almost nothing throughout the 80s and 90s. There's even one story that says something that makes you think it's an allusion to him being uh, homosexual. Um, later issues have tried to tried to show that that was not the case. It was, you know, just the fact that he was just worried for his his assistant Myra Mason, uh, who would have been the 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 lady involved in that storyline, but. Nonetheless, I think a character like Dr. Midnight, who had almost no development, would have been a much more apropos character for that. And I think when you look at the particular powers associated with Alan Scott and Dr. Midnight, Charles McNighter, uh, there would have been a nice analogy there. Uh, Alan Scott is about bringing the light to things, so it would be difficult for him to hide something, to hide something in the shadows, like his, uh, his sexuality, and have to lie to friends and hide something. It really changes the aspect of Alan's character if he's got to be someone constantly hiding and lying to his friends and colleagues over the years. He, he can't be honest with them about his own life just and the the attitudes in the world you know notwithstanding it just changes something about its character it becomes ironic uh, as opposed to uh, appropriate that he sheds light on things whereas dr. midnight is blind he uses the blackout bombs and his whole thing is covering up the, the darkness is covering up things in the darkness so they can't be seen, which would have been a nice uh, uh, metaphor for for that if they had worked that in. This would also fit with the lack of development of his personal life in the Silver and Bronze Age uh, and beyond. It, it would it would show he was a private man who didn't share a lot. No one really knew too much about him, so that would be in direct contrast with the history we have for Alan Scott who 
married twice, had kids, that sort of thing. Additionally, Todd Rice's powers involved darkness and the shadow realm, and there would have been a nice connection there that even if they weren't related, there was a uh, another connection between those two characters that even if they didn't try and develop because Dr. Mc, Dr. McNighter, Charles McNighter, um, Dr. Midnight died in Zero Hour back in 1994, it would have been a nice connection that maybe a thematic connection that Todd Rice would have been able to look back at and see and connect with in a uh, in a meaningful way thematically and uh, it could have even been the impetus for for finding for telling that story about uh, McNider's past I think that to me sits much better in the use of the established history of the characters you know Alan Scott's established history uh, it just doesn't fit with being a gay man uh, and so I, I just am wondering as we go forward with this era of of the Justice Society and these characters will they address that at all uh, I have a pet theory that they're going to ignore a lot of that stuff if they can uh, retcon and ignore certain things from the Golden Age, uh, as far as stories and characterizations go, and we'll start touching on those shortly when we bring out, we break out the uh, the actual comics. Uh, if they can ignore some of those things, and, and it's it's not a far leap to think they're going to ignore stuff that happened 30 years ago, 40 years ago. So I, I have this pet theory that Jade and Obsidian are going to be. Uh, a race. At this point, we haven't seen them in a while. We certainly haven't seen them at all in any of the current JSA comics, the Justice Society comic, the New Golden Age, or Stargirl and the Lost Children, uh, nor have we seen them mentioned in uh, the, uh, the Jay Garrett comic that's currently running. As a matter of fact, uh, he does. He says we haven't even had Alan over for dinner in a long time. No mention of of Molly. Obviously, he's not married to her now. But what happened there? Was he never married? Did they get divorced? You know what 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 happened with all that? That's a uh, that's something that's. Uh, I feel like they're never going to actually explore and try to connect the dots on. They're just going to act like it didn't happen because it, in the sense of the way the omniverse works. It's, stories that don't matter to the story they're trying to tell, so it's going to be ignored, even though if you follow the character for years, it should matter. So, with that said, uh, Jade and Obsidian, if they are eliminated, I think what Jeff Johns is doing in the Justice Society comic right now is building up Ruby and the Harlequin son, Michael Maine, uh, to sort of replace them in continuity, not in a sense of that they can be stand-ins for stories that happened already, but rather going forward, they are going to be Alan Scott's children. They're going to be, uh, Michael Maine is going to be the 
gay son of a JSA or so we don't lose the representation uh, in uh, we have with obsidian and if you look at Ruby and Jade their powers are so similar uh, they're, they have the, the light powers internalized their names are based on precious stones Ruby and Jade uh, they both describe the the color of the stone, jade for green, ruby for red. Uh, it's the related to their the respective uh, lanterns. And as we've learned so recently in the JSA comic, the uh, that the Golden Age Red Lantern, who is a new character, is uh, is Ruby's father. And it turns out, as we learn in the most recent issue of the Alan Scott miniseries, that uh, Vladimir Sokov, the Red Lantern, is actuality one of Alan's lovers from the 40s. And we'll get to that when we look at the comics. Uh, but I think they're going to end up revealing that Michael Maine is also Alan Scott's child. That's why nobody knows who the dad is. The uh, And we'll think we'll learn that his relationship with Molly is actually quite strained. My theory there is going to be that she used her illusion powers, uh, her illusion powers from her gadgets, to seduce Alan and got pregnant. Sounds pretty subversive, makes Molly out to be a bit more of a villain than she was in the uh, Bronze Age when she was uh, reintroduced, but it's just a feeling, it's a theory. Uh, some people have said no, Jade and Obsidian came back, Infinite Tear, they've been seen, but they haven't been seen in like a year. So it's uh it's hard to think that you know, they're gonna be around if they're not in the main book they should be in, which is the Justice Society book. It makes perfect sense. And before someone who's really detailed like I am points out that there is an appearance of them in the in the new golden age it's not a real appearance for the who's who entry for Michael Maine they are in that image in the background but they're never mentioned as uh, in the who's who entry nor in any of the actual stories or flashbacks that we see in any of those comics even the group shots with tons of characters like Batman's funeral that we're see in that go the new Golden Age number one one shot, which has been over a year at this point, <laughs> the uh, almost a year and a half since so that came out, they're not in there. They're not in there in any of the scenes. So I think there's good evidence at this point to to, to say that they're they're going to be ignored and, and replaced with uh, Ruby and Michael Maine, and. I will say that I'm enjoying what's uh, being done with the Ruby character in uh, in JSA. The Michael Mann character hasn't gotten a lot of attention yet, but I kind of worry that it's going to be difficult. He's going to be a difficult character, much like uh, Obsidian when he was first introduced, and he was he was a bit difficult in his relationships, especially with his uh, with his parents. Uh, and that's something that's indicated in the Who's Who entry is that he has a, a strained relationship with his mother, especially if he found out that's how he was conceived. And like I said, it's my idea. I haven't read it anywhere. I don't have any inside information, heaven forbid. Uh, it's just it's just a thought. It's just a feeling. Some deductive reasoning. So, uh, 
so those are some things of what I think we, we lose with, uh, with retconning Alan Scott's uh, sexuality. And what I want to talk about in this episode is not simply what I like or dislike, uh, but rather, um, you know, how, how well, how retcons affect, affect comics. And since uh, this is a show that's ostensibly mostly about stuff before the Silver Age, you know, we're talking about going back to the original appearances of some of these characters. And uh, it's interesting to see, you know, writers that are able to pull back on those old stories. Um, Roy Thomas in the uh, 80s was great for that. He, he loved trying to pull any piece he could to make it relate to, uh, to what was uh, going on in, in the stories he was telling in the present. Were they 100%? No. Were there instances of, you know, modern day... Uh, uh, ideas influencing what he was writing? Of course. I've been rereading All-Star Squadron over the past couple months, and, you know, he's got a, a storyline in there with Will Everett, the amazing man who's an African-American character. So you can't have all the JSA members who were white, uh, you know, be outwardly racist to the guy. But he's not afraid of showing the, the tension that's there, uh, and how some of the background characters do react to uh, the African American character in that in those situations, and and we'll see in the Green Lantern stuff some of the things that Tim Sherrod and the writer does that that are good as far as trying to connect to the past, but at the same time, there's other things that he completely re reimagines that to me don't don't fit the the spirit of the character of the justice society it 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 wraps it up in a in a lens that is just kind of uh this pushes it in that niche direction to where everything is sort of subservient to the notion of uh, of the focus of the comic being about a gay man in the 40s now, now one thing I do need to mention before we get to the comics, and if you're here for the comics, I'm sorry, you're you're gonna get a little bit more of my my thoughts. I was uh, thinking about things, uh, and this really was spurred on by uh, uh, Tim Sheridan's video about uh, I love Alan Scott. Uh, let's own the bigots and homophobes by buying this first issue. And while I did feel like I was being attacked because I knew I wasn't buying the comic uh, and out of a misunderstanding I think Sheridan misunderstands that you know not buying the comic doesn't make you a bigot or a homophobe it just means you're not interested in that story. And I think uh, for those fans who have been around and have an idea of Alan Scott, have enjoyed the Alan Scott stories, it's a it's a jarring shift that is not something that if you're not able to relate to that, if you're not able to relate to the experience of being gay, 
being a gay man in the 40s, that's pretty niche. Uh, but being a gay man in the period, uh, or maybe homosexual at all, I'm sure, or anywhere on the on that uh, LGBTQ uh, representation, if you're not part of that, you know, the the Green Lantern stories that Sheridan is writing are uh, may not resonate with you. And I could tell because of my strong connections to what's already gone, uh, what's already been told with Alan Scott's history from the golden age up through the 70s and 80s and 90s and 2000s, his whole career, you know, up to the new 52. I, uh, it was not something that excited me. It did not, it, it, ID did not resonate with me. And part of that is it not fitting into continuity. You know, there's the continuity thing, but there's also, you know, I'm just not gonna, that's just not something that's gonna appeal to me, uh, no matter how well it's written, no matter how well it's executed. You know, I, I don't think, you know, that's unreasonable. We have uh, representation and inclusion in order to appeal to a different audience, so it seems to me that it's logical that characters that are there specifically for representation and inclusion could not appeal to the audience that's already there, which is the reason they're there to begin with is to appeal to a different audience. And of course it depends on how well it's done uh, as to what audience it appeals to. And that's kind of where I'm, I'm headed with this notion, uh, uh, this next, this next idea. If, uh, if, if, if they wanted, and I say they, meaning DC, whoever's decisions, uh, made these decisions to keep a, uh, to keep the representation of a, a LGBTQ character in JSA, um, it seems like it would have been an obvious decision to just focus on Obsidian. And if you really wanted to tie it closer to Green Lantern himself, I think with the with the stories that had come before that we've already mentioned, with Alan Scott and Todd Rice having difficulty uh, relating as father and son, with Todd Rice uh, coming out as gay, having a boyfriend, having uh, having that reconciliation with his father to where they can, where they were finally able to be a father and son and and share that uh, parent-child love <sighs> genuinely I, I think it it would have been a, a no-brainer to instead of just make Alan Scott gay rewrite his entire history and potentially lose the presence of obsidian in the comics at all or, or entirely I think it would have made it much more sense to push that story forward I imagine a miniseries in which something happens, Alan Scott, Obsidian and Jade have to team up, work together. I don't know the whole reasons behind it, uh, but the part I do I do uh I do key in on is that this would have been a perfect opportunity to do something along these lines. Uh keeping it topical and 
for those uh, socially minded who are interested and uh, like to see those kinds of things, the comics. Damon and uh, Todd are going to get married. Maybe they're in a in a state or they face some backlash from it. And the whole experience makes Alan Scott become a huge ally. And instead of simply pushing or uh, changing Alan Scott's uh, history, you make him the biggest ally for for the LGBT community and he's a member of the JSA and he can be a vocal member he can be out there at pride marches and all that and whatever whatever you would want to do to make that uh, obvious but you can do that as a and actually tell a story that fits with what you've already got with Alan Scott uh, a history of a, a man from the 40s that maybe had uh, notions about homosexuality as being evil and wrong as a young man and as he gets older and has to come face to face with the reality of what it's like uh, as he learns it's his own son and he's already got difficulties with him and then over the time you've got uh, the change, the shift after he he really comes to grips with it and you have a real a real character uh, uh, development from you know, the golden age all the way to the present, and as it as you look at it along the way, it makes sense. It fits. It flows. You don't lose anything. Then you've got Alan and Molly still together. Alan and Molly, or you know, Molly becomes the the ally as well. It's a story that I think uh, would have allowed for many of the same themes and obviously the same inclusion. Uh, and even a Golden Age JSA, one of the first, uh, being a champion of LGBTQ rights, that uh, I think would have been the right way to handle this type of situation as opposed to uh, the massive retcons to, to Alan's, uh, Alan's history. Now, they didn't do this, so, so you know, that's just me and what I'm thinking because to me like I said the comics come first uh, the history of the comics respecting the stories of the past making it feel like it's one story one it's one character living this whole life having all this experience that's what's that's what's exciting what's not exciting is feeling like you're constantly restarting rebooting what mattered what didn't matter it becomes confusing to some and downright annoying and I think uh, I think if we look at the uh, the, the cur- other uh, miniseries that are going on right now, the Jay Garrick and the Wesley Dodds, we can see some different ways of of, of doing some of these uh, these types of things. The uh, first thing, though, we have to kind of look at some of the the retcons and some of the things that are in the Green Lantern book. Some of the some of the high points and low points, and I will get those out right here and we can take a look together the uh, the first issue of the miniseries I think I think the most startling thing is uh, I don't know that Dolby Dickles would have really had such a live and let live attitude uh, based on his his character he's not 
the most experienced or smartest character ever. As a matter of fact, his uh, his dim-wittedness was played uh, played for last very often. So I have a very difficult time imagining that he would be the one to so accepting of Alan's lifestyle. Uh, and it's indicated he knows. So a couple things that happen here are uh, are that are are neat. One of them is he. Uh, we have uh, the newspaper that appears on page one has a uh, story by Scoop Scanlon, who was a uh, newspaper strip character that DC had in uh, one of their books. I don't remember which issue, which comic it was, but they did. I recognize that. And, a, and the photographs that we see in the papers uh, and the subsequent photographs that uh, J. Edgar Hooper is going to pop out are actual uh, panels from old comics. Uh, you can tell. Uh, how they're drawn, that they are actual panels, and some of them I even recognize. Uh, one of them is, uh, I can tell you where they got it from even. There's a, uh, a panel with, uh, a picture with Alan Scott uh, rescuing Irene Miller, the lady that worked at the radio station with him in the 40s, uh, rescuing her from the icicle, and that's actually from the Golden Age Green Lantern story that's in the greatest Golden Age stories ever told, the the comp, the, uh, the, comp, the collection that came out, I guess, in the late 80s, I think it was. Could be early 90s. I'm pretty sure it's late 80s. So that's a neat touch. that They're actually using uh, panels from the Golden Age. That's a nice way of uh, connecting things, even though the story is taking place much earlier than that story took place. <laughs> so the timing is a bit off, but it's a nice, uh, it's a noted effort. Now, what doesn't really work in this uh uh, retcon is that J. Edgar Hoover is uh, blackmailing Alan Scott to not only work with the JSA but also to potentially engage in uh, sexual uh, relationship with him. I don't think it's supposed to be a uh, uh, ongoing relationship but rather a uh, come over tonight and you know if you don't do this with me, I'll report you. So the idea that he uh, is being blackmailed into the JSA is uh, doesn't say a lot about his the content of his character. Um, I don't feel like it fits uh, and the whole blackmailing for sex thing is pretty gross, uh, be it heterosexual or homosexual, and it's just one of those things that colors the tone of the series to where everything is going to be bent to fit this, uh, this idea. We're going to lose a lot of things we like about the character, and we're going to lose the we're seeming to lose the the cohesiveness of the JSA as a team. Um, they haven't mentioned the origin of the JSA in this yet, but remember, he was supposed to have gone to Germany and been controlled by the Spear of Destiny along with the rest of the original JSA members. So uh, it it brings into question whether there's a whole new origin for. Uh, the JSA as well, and 
I don't like them messing with the origin of the JSA and the uh, those aspects. He can't seem to get uh, yeah the idea he wants to work alone is doesn't really fit because he's had such a strong uh, connection to the uh, to the team over the years. Now, something interesting artistically that uh, Tormi is doing, and I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Sean. Uh, I spelled C-I-M, and I'm pretty sure it's Sean Tormi. I think it's a it's a alternate spelling from uh, Tormi is an Irish last name, but Sean and Irish is spelled differently. But anyways, uh, when he draws Alan in profile, it is very reminiscent of the way Alan would be drawn in the early days of. Uh, of the comics and, and it's a I don't know if he's aware of it or not but it it really is a nice callback uh, an artistic callback to to that now in the second issue we have Alan's stint in Arkham Asylum which is really strange um, obviously that was never part of the original story but what was part of the story was that the, the there was a, a man in the asylum named uh, Billings that uh, carved the the lamp, uh, the Green Lantern lamp from the original uh, lamp from from China that would become the lamp that gave Alan his powers. Now I think it's clever that Sheridan found a way to work that little tidbit in, uh, but I I don't know that the uh, that the turning him into a trans woman is the really fits the the era. I don't know enough about it. I don't. I, I'm fully aware of that, but it's not something that is going to resonate with me anyway. So it's not something I've taken pains to explore. But I don't. But having him be so uh, crucial to the origin just seems forced even if it is a clever a clever bit on a on Sheridan's part to, part to find a way to work that in and it really just feels more like something uh, modern day than something that would have really fit the uh, the era now one of the good things about uh, the script that that Sheridan is is writing is the uh, the mystery he comes upon with the uh, uh, the murdered men in the uh, down by the docks, and what we learn is in the uh, in the next issue is that Alan Scott is has been uh, visiting male prostitutes, and I have to say that that doesn't sit well with me. I wouldn't want to see a character visit male or female prostitutes. Um, I think they're crossing a line there with uh, uh, morality and that sort of thing. Um, and what's right. The uh, There could be a, a backlash from people who support sex workers and I understand there are some people that are going to uh, be offended by that notion, but uh, I think there's a better way than doing things that way. And 
if anything, it further takes the idea of uh, of of having that sort of spirit of the Golden Age characters, even if we're uh, rewriting them to fit something different with retcons, that really doesn't feel like Golden Age comics. And I can share the uh, the contrast of that with the uh, most recent issue of the Jay Garrick, The Flash, uh, issue number four, in which Jeremy Adams tweaks Jay Garrick's origin. But he does it in a way that doesn't take away anything from that original story in Flash Comics number one. Instead, it it just shows you other things that were happening, but doesn't change anything about Jay Garrick. Um, whereas this whole thing changes a whole lot about Alan Scott and what he uh, what his morality is outside of being gay. We won't even touch, try to uh, suggest that that's a moral issue, but the idea of paying for sex, I think, is. Issue number three does something that is really weird, and it's not so much uh, with Alan. I mean, we already talked about the visiting prostitutes bit. Uh, it continues to build the theme of the tension uh, with the Justice Society and not wanting to work with them. But uh, when the Spectre shows up, he, he seems to have the Spectre, Sheridan seems to write the Spectre completely out of character. Um, he's, he, does, he must never have read a Spectre comic or story ever to understand that the Spectre is, is about fear and vengeance and killing people. He's not about uh, love and hugs and understanding. He's the wrath of God. The wrath of God doesn't come give you a hug. That's Jesus. Jesus comes gives you a hug and says it's going to be okay. Um, the wrath of God smites you for whatever you've done. If he doesn't think Alan Scott's done anything wrong, then he wouldn't be giving him a hug. He just wouldn't smite him. He would ignore him and focus on the murders that he's trying, that he's involved, that Alan Scott's trying to solve. He would help solve the murders in order to smite the people that uh, that perpetrated the murder. He wouldn't be giving Alan Scott a hug. He wouldn't care about Alan Scott's feelings at all. Um, uh, there's other references to the Spectre in the 90s uh, having an issue with homosexuals. So the fact that we're doing this uh, in this issue with the Spectre giving Alan Scott a hug, telling him it's okay, you haven't done anything wrong, uh, attempts to justify not just uh, Alan Scott's sexuality, but his visits to the prostitutes as well, which is really strange and uh, really weird. I don't, uh, it gets into a, a ground that, that pushes the story further away from a superhero story with a gay character for representation to a story that's more about the, uh, uh, not just the morality of homosexuality, but the, uh, morality of, of sex work and, 
and those kind of things and what I guess is justified uh, I don't know justified or or understandable forgivable not not sure what the right word there is because I don't I can't I can't wrap my head around it enough to to be close enough to it it's so distant from my own experience uh, so once again things that don't match and fit and dovetail neatly with we, we already have about Alan Scott's character and I, I guess one of the things about this series that you can say is that Sheridan does have some interesting ideas uh, and I, I don't deny that he's probably doing a good job of giving us what the experience for a, a gay man would have been like in the 40s but at the same time is that man really Alan Scott is Alan Scott the best character for this uh, for this story um, you know, I, I would say, I would say it's not, <laughs> there's too much, we know, it, we've already know about the character that the, the, the shift is, is too great, and I could accept this much more easily as a different Alan Scott, if you put this, in, if this is a alternate universe Alan Scott, but it can't be the same Alan Scott that we've already been reading about for 80, 80 years, uh, it's 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 too it's too far afield of that so that's the things that issue three really um really are, are difficult to to do to deal with so interestingly uh issue four is more about the uh the mystery and the reveal of who exactly the Red Lantern is. Um, Alan Scott figures it out at the end of number three and t just before he gets conked on the head and it ends up being uh, Alan, uh, what is it, Johnny Ladd is his name? Johnny Ladd, the uh, that character we saw uh, in the first issue that we was uh, Alan was in the army with and and such it's a it's surprising in that sense that he would be uh, undercover turns out he's undercover as a, uh, a Russian spy and he uh, is In America to infiltrate the army, etc., and uh, ends up figuring out Alan Scott's gay and begins a relationship with him. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, unsurety uh, suggested in his character to determine if it's really uh, all an act or if he's also really gay but nonetheless what you have is you have uh, Alan Scott has this character that's been created as a uh, retconned in the Red Lantern as his greatest enemy during the Golden Age but also turns out to be uh, a lover so you've got a different twist to it and I would say that 
all this bit is is pretty well done but it's also important to realize that a lot of this has been set up and developed in the justice society comic that's running concurrently at the same time it's not only what we see in uh in in the alan scott issue it's uh i i i didn't read them you know independently I was reading I read I've read them both so it's hard to see the see it play out just in one issue just in one series or just in the other but uh, I think when taken together it's it's done quite well the two that they, 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 both the uh, both series are working quite well in developing that that because you got more of Ruby obviously in the JSA in relationship to her father and the past and learning about some of those things but you've also got a subtle moment with Alan where he's not quite uh, when he and Ruby are talking his he gives away a lot in his facial expressions apparently and his uh, his speech that Ruby figures out wait a minute there's something else going on what's going on here there's something more you're not telling me you just weren't his enemy uh, and that's done quite well, and then it it pairs really well with what happens in this when uh, the Red Lantern shows up, conks Alan on the head. Alan wakes up, and they talk, and they figure out. Alan figures out what he was suspected was right. It was Johnny Ladd, his uh, his lover that was in the uh, the military with him, and in uh, uh, those aspects, that's, that's quite good. So uh, overall, this series to me is uh, it's good in some ways uh, I think a lot of the ideas that Sheridan has for telling the story of a gay man in the 40s are are, are, are good if that's what you want to read um, uh, I, I would still say that doesn't fit the character I think some of the mystery stuff has been good I think the uh, even though I'm not drawn necessarily to the relationships with the character, the way he's uh, developed the story with uh, the Red Lantern is quite interesting. That it's it was more than it seemed. You know, I don't think I saw. I don't really think I saw that coming until uh, Sheridan let Alan Scott figure it out in the comic. Um, and of course, I think all that plays well into what's going on with the future uh, and the, their future, the current stuff. That's all been developed very well between uh, Johns and Sheridan and the editors or whatever, whoever's uh, coordinating all that. That has all been put together quite well. And I almost feel like it's why the uh, JSA comic has been uh, delayed. Because if it hadn't been delayed, this most recent JSA issue number eight that came out would have come out like last year well before we got to this issue uh, of the Alan Scott miniseries so I think the uh, I think the uh, the delay there in the JSA book is uh, is intentional I don't think it's a uh, uh, unintentional delay due to creators being uh, slow or, or or whatever I think it's intentional so that it could match up with what happened uh, at the end of Stargirl and the Lost Children and introducing Judy Garrick the Boom so she could show up in the Jake Garrick comic uh, and so what followed from 
the appearance in the JSA book goes right to the uh, Jake Garrett comic, and the same with the Alan Scott book and the uh, and this most recent issue, um, JSA number eight. So I think those are all good things that have uh, those are good things that have, have come of uh, of what's going on here. For makes for good storytelling, and those aspects, of course, I think make for good comics. I think if you try to imagine this as a totally different Alan Scott. Uh, it's uh, it works better, you know. It may not be to your liking, but I think it it creates less uh, confusion, fewer questions. You know, if I just knew straight off the top, yeah, this is a different Alan Scott that came back from limbo. This is not the Alan Scott who was married to Molly Maine and had kids with Thorn and. Uh, Obsidian and Jade just they don't exist anymore if you just knew all that if there was no questions about it and you didn't feel like you were hanging on uh, waiting for them to connect the dots dots that will probably never be connected I think it would work it would work as a retcon uh, better but uh, that said when you choose to ignore stories that taken place it, it can alienate you from the character and that's kind of what's happening for me is it's alienating me from what I know about the character and what I've enjoyed about the character and the relationships the characters had and the uh, the the stuff that's been done with the character that have been good with his kids with Jade with Obsidian with him coming to terms with you know Todd being gay with those things with with not being afraid to show, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a man from the '40s who really would probably have some prejudices about uh, homosexuality uh, as an adult in the '90s and teens or '90s and aughts and teens. Um, you get that, but you get it done in a way that you have a, you know, people are people are are resolving those sto those issues and those stories that we talked about they're not uh, they're not maintaining him as a uh, 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 as not understanding and uh, person and, and just and mean or anything you know I mean they could do that with a different character if you wanted to but that wouldn't make him heroic either but I think the fact that he did struggle. He did seem real in a lot of ways, adds a lot to the storytelling and the characterization. And I think that would have gone a long way in telling a different story about him and uh, Obsidian uh, going forward in the future and continuing to have a good relationship as father and son. Um, it would have a great opportunity to make him an ally, as I talked about. Now, I was mentioning uh, the Jay Garrick and the Sandman series, too. Uh, as far as uh, retcons go. Now the Sandman series doesn't seem to have uh, any retcons that are any outright retcons that I can come up with. Um, it does draw heavily on, well let's not say heavily, let's say it draws equally on I would say Golden Age Sandman stuff as well as the uh, uh, Sandman Mystery Theater stories uh, series from the uh, from the 90s by Matt Wagner uh, and Steven Siegel. The, uh, the 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 current Sandman series pulls a lot of that 
and a lot of the uh, Golden Age feel. It's a nice blend. And so far, there's nothing specifically retcon that I can tell that goes against uh, the Sandman Mystery Theater stories. Now, the Sandman Mystery Theater stories did, in fact, retcon some things uh, from what had already been uh, uh, told. The... Uh, Well, you know what? As I say that, uh, I think it's important to note that the, uh, I don't know if we got far enough along, the, but the, the, but the, 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 the Wesley Dodds of that era in the 90s, the aughts, um, was distinct from the Sandman that had been around in, on Earth 2, uh, during the Bronze Age, uh, Diane Belmont had died. Uh, she was eliminated from the series when Simon and Turkey took, Kirby took over uh, in the 40s, and they turned him into a swashbuckling character with the purple and yellow suit, as opposed to the trench coat, gas mask, and hat, which is a much more iconic look for the character. Roy Thomas gives us the death of Diane Belmont in an All-Star Squadron issue, uh, like 17, 18, something like that. But uh, but I think it's easy to say that's the pre-crisis uh, Wesley and Diane, whereas the uh, Sam and Mystery Theater, which is a Vertigo title and probably not intended to be canon, uh, actually was so popular that it it became the default uh, take on Sandman, uh, the Wesley Dodd Sandman in the post-crisis, post-zero hour for that matter, uh, uh, DC Universe, and I think uh, the strength of that series uh, went a long way in making it uh, acceptable to readers, despite the fact that it did change things that uh, we uh, we thought we knew from the uh, from the pre-crisis era. We had uh, Diane still living; she was seen in uh, Sandman and. Uh, Sandman, not Sandman, Starman, the Starman series by Jamie Robinson that was being published at the same time. We saw Diane alive in that series, so there there were things that changed, but this current series isn't changing. This current series is doing exactly what I was talking about earlier. It's taking elements and working them in together so that they work well together, and it's being done quite well. Written by Robert Venditti and uh, uh, drawn by Riley Rosmo, and I think... Uh, that's a series that I hope to see continued. Um, the Jake Garrick, The Flash series is a series I hope to see continued too as well. And uh, I would say I def I, I'm definitely enjoying it, but uh, not unlike the Alan Scott series, there are some things that are harder to accept. And, that, and maybe I'll get to that. It, it's kind of weird. Uh, Firstly, though, I talked about the uh, the retcons to uh, Jay's origin, and it's not really retcons; it's more of a here's what happened in between the panels. The uh, issue four has a uh, the origin of Jay Garrick and how the origin of Judy, how the Boom got her powers. But what it does is it 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 gives you back that original story from Flash Comics number one everything down to Jay Garrick smoking in the lab. Um, even those kind of details are held on to. But it tells you 
something else that was going on in the background that Jay had no knowledge of, that no one had any knowledge of, and Jay is just finding about now in the present. And so it, it works that way in the sense that you can read that Flash comic story and know that everything is is still intact. Um, whereas you read that original Green Lantern story and, you know, Tim Sheridan, they have that origin story has been retconned to he and, uh, you know, Jimmy are in the in the caboose or somewhere hidden dark, you know, making out uh, when the train wrecks. And it's it's adds it changes the the I think the the, the tone of the, the story a lot a lot more than the uh, you're not really missing anything. Uh, because what happens in the Jay Garrick story is it affects what happens later. It doesn't ha affect what happens immediately in the Golden Age, whereas the Alan Scott stuff, those retcons affect immediately what happens to his character and who his character is, whereas it, the, ch the changes in Jay's origin don't tell you anything different, don't, make, don't change Jay. They don't change Jay. They just change some of the circumstances to build a bigger story about something he finds about in the current day. And part of that is is Judy. And uh, and I, I've said this in my reviews of the Star Girl, the Lost Children series. I really like Judy. I really like Judy. I'm very much invested in what happens to her. She's like a great addition. I love that she's still wearing a Golden Age style uniform that makes her look like she's, you know an old kid, a kid from another era. Um, but one of the things about Jay and his wife, Joan, that had been so uh, prevalent in his depiction and an aspect of their character was the fact that they didn't have kids. And it wasn't simply that they, they didn't have kids. It was that they couldn't have kids. They were unable to have kids. And I, I think what is working for me for the series is that I, I do like Judy. Straight up, I like Judy. Just like I like Ruby's character in, uh, in JSA. Um, but it's easier for me to relate to Jay as a father, as a father of two girls, and Jay finding out he has a daughter. It's easier to to to, to make that work. To it, that aspect resonates with me, but I would be lying if I said there isn't still a part of me that feels like they're not supposed to have kids. That's supposed to be a pain they have that they carry with them that adds some sort of depth to their characterization that that makes the Flash family, it makes Jay Garrick as the, the first Flash more poignant when he's able to be like a father figure to Barry or a father slash grandfather figure to Wally and his relationship with Bart that's the relationship that 
he never had with his own kids. And now that he's got to, it, it just, I mean, like I said, I, I like the Jay Garrick series. I want to see it keep going. But it's a change that is difficult. Uh, not unlike what's done with Alan Scott. However, the one part that I'm able to, I think, access that is the the way in which Jeremy Adams tweak thing, tweaks things like the origin uh, and the fact that I can relate to being a father of a daughter. So it's hard not to see things that way. Because uh, it it's me that's I can relate to that that that, that really resonates with me um, so I think uh, I think it, it shows you how when you look at these three different books and of course we didn't look at Jay Herrick and Sandman for as closely <sighs> um, I mean I, I could spend some time with with them and, and do something with that but I don't think it's I think I think the Alan Scott book has a lot more I think I have a lot more to say about it because of the the nature of those changes and how it's going to affect things going forward but I uh, I want I want to see the Sandman and the and the JSA book and the and the J J Garrick book continue. Um, I know the JSA current series is only supposed to be a, a twelve issue series, so that's uh, that's unfortunate. But I'd still like to see that continue. Uh, and you know all of this, you know, relates to uh, you know the changing characters relates to what I see as a, a larger issue. I've written about this on the, on the DC Comics Dudes website, so I'll just try to touch on it briefly and, and sign off here. This has been a fairly long uh, uh, discussion uh, monologue. <laughs> um, it seems like a lot of comics today. Uh, writers aren't so much interested in writing the characters um, as they are but they're interested in writing what they want to write and they're willing to bend the characters to fit what stories they want to write. You know, I feel like with Jay Garrick and Sandman, uh, Jeremy Adams and Robert Venditti, respectively, are trying to write those characters. Sure, we've got a retcon with Jay Garrick having a kid, but he's trying to write Jay Garrick and what he would do with that, what that would be like, because it's there's a lot going on there when you think about all of a sudden you've got a kid that you didn't thought you had, thought didn't remember you had, and then all your memories start to fill in. Um, there's a lot going on there to be explored, and I think that could be continue to be an interesting series. Um, uh, Sandman is just straight up good, flat out. <laughs> no way uh, to say anything else about it. It does it does a great job with pulling on the past as well as um, you know giving us an interesting story. But for me, the Alan Scott series seems much more like they're not really interested in writing Alan Scott. And I say they. I don't just mean Tim Sheridan. I mean DC Comics isn't really interested in uh, taking his story and moving forward. They're interested in having an LGBTQ character, and they're going to make it Alan Scott. So they're going to change him and bend him and struggle to force his history to fit how they need it to in order to 
to tell that story. Um, and to me, that's kind of the thing that's going on with, with Power Girl at the same time. And, of course, if you listen to the Earth 2 and the Bronze Age show, you know Power Girl is a, a big part of that and one of those characters uh, that I really love and have loved. And the, uh, the current series is just awful. Uh, it's a complete uh, reinvention of the character as far as her personality goes. It's it it's for Power Girl fans. It's like it's not even Power Girl. It's it uh, it's as bad in that sense. It's as much not Power Girl uh, as, as in the same sense that the Alan Scott series just doesn't seem to be the same Alan Scott. This is not the same. Uh, uh, power girl um, that that you're used to. Her personality has completely changed. Um, you can read the reviews to see exactly where uh, I stand on that. I don't want to go too far along that road, but it it really, really, really uh, impacts the uh, the enjoyment of the series. It's like a different character, uh, and even you know within the stories themselves they try to reference the past but the past doesn't the substance of what happened in those past stories doesn't seem to relate at all to the character in the way she's written so in, in that sense it has a lot of uh, it has some similarities to the Alan Scott series but I would I would almost say that the Alan Scott series is still done better than the Power Girl series right now, and that's a true shame for any fan of uh, Power Girl, Earth 2, JSA characters. Um, you know, those of us who 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 love those those stories and over the years, you know, that's that's my still my favorite stuff is the original Earth 2 and those characters and their stories as they grew and developed and all that. And the Power Girl series is failing miserably but uh, I think I'm done for today so I hope I didn't uh, alienate anyone hope I didn't talk too long or bore you but uh, that's what came to me today and I thought I should share it with uh, share it on this uh, on this show with the with an episode that went kind of different uh, but as I said, it still relates to the golden age of comics and how retcons are executed and what we're currently seeing in comics with retcons and golden age characters. So I think it, uh, I think it all fits in there. So once again, thanks for, thanks for joining me and I hope I'll be able to talk to you again soon. Thank mm -hmm. you.